Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're in the section of the service in Shachrit, which is called Kriyat Shema, or the recitation of the Shema. It's called that, by the way, because we're because of how we're supposed to recite the Shema, we're actually supposed to say the words um, aloud and not just think them in our head. We'll get to that later when we talk about various halachic guidelines um, of how to do the Shema. We talked last week at some length about the pshat, which means the original meaning and context of the Shema in Deuteronomy uh, as a statement against uh, a warning against don't fall in with polytheism, pagan polytheism, when you get to the land, because that's going to be all around you. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the pshat, just another note about the pshat. Um, If I dig up this article, I'll try to send it out to you. But if not, you can dig it up on your own easily enough on the Internet. Um, A non-Jewish Bible scholar named William Moran, M-O-R-A-N, wrote an article in a journal called Catholic Biblical Quarterly a few decades ago in which he, he theorized with some evidence that he brought from ancient Near Eastern texts that the Shema, the first paragraph, Shema Ve'ahavta, um, is written with a recognizable literary form of a treaty from contemporary times in the ancient Near East. And the kind of treaty was called a vassal suzerain treaty. So if you remember from, I don't know, seventh grade or whenever you learned a little bit of world history, the vassal was the subordinate king and the suzerain was the big king. So very often if I was a big king and I had a big army and I wanted to build an empire, I would come with my army and I would conquer your smaller country. And then rather than wiping you out or killing you as the king, uh, I'd get you to surrender and then you would agree to pay me tribute, which is a fancy way of saying protection money. In the ancient Near East, it was, you need to deliver such and such number of pounds of gold and silver every year. Um, And when you did that, we made a treaty. And the treaty said, uh, from it, it could either be written from the point of view of the suzerain or the vassal, right? And it basically said, you vassal king must be loyal to me alone. You must preoccupy yourself with thinking of me, speaking of me, and doing what I want you to do. Um, And you may not have loyalty to anyone else. And this must be the sole focus of your existence. This is actually sort of the language of a treaty. And, you know, archaeologists have dug up uh, Assyrian and Hittite treaties that sound like this. So, Avi, excuse me for one second. Michael, yeah. could you please let um, 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 Jonathan in? I don't see him on my screen, by the way. No, he's not. He's not. He's not there. Okay. He he's tried. Not the, he's not in the waiting room. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sorry. Um, he texted me. Yeah. So tell him he's not showing up in the waiting room. Um, 
so Moran said, he probably didn't say what I'm about to say, but uh, I'll translate it. Debra Torah Bilshon B'nai Adam. The Torah speaks in language that is recognizable to human beings, meaning either when Moshe Rabbeinu or God or the author D, whatever you believe in, um, wrote this down and wanted to communicate to B'nai Israel, you need to be 100% loyal to Hashem, okay, and no other gods. The, the wording or literary form that was used was something that would be recognizable to the people then, right? Rather than, I don't know, making up an essay from scratch, the author, I'm happy to say the author with a capital A, used a formulation that would have been recognizable to people then. They would have said, oh, yeah, this is just like a treaty with the superior king, that we have to be totally devoted to the superior king and no one else. All right? So that's William Moran, Catholic Biblical Quarterly, who said, Shema V'Yahavta in Deuteronomy is written in the borrowing language formulae from a, at that time, recognizable suzerain vassal treaty. So that's another layer of pshat meaning of Shema V'Yahavta. When I say now Shema, I'll, I always have to specify, do I mean the first line? Do I mean the first paragraph? Do I mean the all three? So right now I mean the whole first paragraph of Shema V'Yahavta. Any comment or question about that little piece? Yeah, Mike? Isn't that also supported by the way that, that the rabbis have put trope in here? Because is it possible to read this as, as listen or hear Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem, pause, because there's that vertical line, Hashem, the one and only. Yes, as we said, yes, and as we said last time, um, you know, another common Bible scholar understanding of what that means in context, again, against polytheism, is Hashem alone, right? So, yes, so if you want to add the line to it, yes, that, that supports that, but it basically means Hey, listen, Israel, Hashem is our deity. You could imagine it if it were uh, an earthly treaty. Listen, such and such a nation. So-and-so is our king. So-and-so alone. Or so-and-so the one and only. Right? Caesar. Julius Caesar. Whatever. But I didn't add that line. That line is in the Tikkun and it's in the Sidur. That's correct. So tell me how you think the line adds. The me and the line, the line is a pause. The line, hold on. Michael's asking about it. It's a line called a pasek, and a pasek is that line between Hashem and Echad. And what it means is, even though you're supposed to go on from Hashem to Echad without pausing, you have a little itty bitty pause. So, Michael, tell me how you think that enhances the meaning. Because it it um, it by by pausing it puts emphasis on the Echad. I think. Okay, good. It put emphasis on the Echad. It would almost be like a comma. Hashem, the one and only. That's how you would read it. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Israel, Hashem is our deity. Oh, there are people in the waiting room. Hold on. Not I'll take care of it. Waiting room. Go ahead. I'll, get, I'll take it. Not, oh, you got it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so listen, Israel, Hashem is our deity. Hashem, the one and only. Good. So you're saying the little line to give you the little itty-bitty semi-comma sort of pause enhances the meaning of that. Okay, lovely. Great. Thank you. Anything anything else about 
Any questions about vassal suzerain treaty? And again, I never know. Like some people find this very interesting and other people may have the attitude of like, oh, who cares? That was a long time ago. What it, what it means is what it means to me. I don't care what it meant to them 3,000 years ago. So let's move on from that. I, want to, I will come back to, I promise we'll come back to the meaning of that first line. But first I want to go on to the second line because understanding the second line could, might enhance our appreciation of the meaning of the first line. Baruch Shem Kivod Ma'ed, which we say silently or in an undertone, except for on Yom Kippur, although it's my understanding that uh, in Reform synagogues, Baruch Shem Kivod Ma'ed is generally said aloud. Bernie Goler, Bernie, is that true that in Reform synagogues, Baruch Shem Kivod Ma'ed is generally said aloud in synagogue every week? Could you unmute? Yes, he nods. Yes. Right. So reform shuls do that. But traditionally, we do not. We say it in an undertone, except on Yom Kippur. Why is this here? So if you look in Deuteronomy, it's not part of Deuteronomy. So I am aware of three reasons how Baruch Shem Kod Ed got to be here. It's entirely possible that there are more than three. But in my sources of reading, there are three. Number one, which is probably a probably the pshat meaning, the original meaning and context, the re- original reason and context. Um, Baruch Shem Kavod Ma'chutolulam Ba'ed was a line that was said in the temple by the people there when they heard the Kohen say God's name. What do we say when we hear God's name? When you hear someone say a blessing, what do we say? Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo. So this is sort of like what they did in temple times. They didn't say Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo. By the way, they also didn't say Amen in temple times, apparently, right? They'd hear God's name recited. They would say Baruch Shem Kvod Machutolulam Ba'ed. Now, how did you know that already without me telling you that? When do we say that liturgically? Not in the Shema, but some other time. I'll give you a hint. Right, in the Avoda service, the hint was going to be. The Avoda service. Correct, Stevie, the Avoda service. So the hint was going to be, it's coming up soon, high holidays. So it says that in the Avoda service, which is the section in Musaf on Yom Kippur, when we recite uh, parts of a poem about what was the, what were the specifics of the actual service, the procedures that the Kohen Gadol did in the temple on Yom Kippur, it says the Kohen Gadol made sacrifices and he made three confessions, one for himself, one for the priestly house, and one for all of Israel. And in each confession, there was blood, you remember, there's blood sprinkling, all that stuff. Um, and, um, and the Kohen says, uh, I'm enacting this ritual, as it says in the Torah, Ki vayom alechem, because on this day, uh, I will cleanse you and I will, you will get forgiveness. And before God, you will become, you become purified before God. And when people heard him say, right, and he said the name, not Hashem and not even Adonai, but the holy, sacred, unpronounceable way, right? 
what does it say in the Avodah service? And all the people, when they heard God's name being uttered, they would, what would they do before they said, Baruch Shem Kod Machotololam Vaed? Bow down. Remember? Bow down. Yeah, but big bow. They would fall on their faces and prostrate themselves, okay, flat, all right, and say, Baruch Shem Kivod Machutol Le'olam Vaed. Blessed is God's holy, sacred name forever and ever. So they heard the name being uttered on Yom Kippur in the temple as part of the cleansing ritual. They were, we, we have to imagine this as being a, a, a very powerful religious moment. So the Kohen Gadol was saying the sentence and everyone else, presumably that would mean all the other Kohanim who were present. I assume you and I as regular Schlepper Israelites probably wouldn't have been there in the temple on Yom Kippur, but you know, who knows? So everyone else who was there would prostrate, they would fling themselves down prostrate and say, And by the way, this procedure that they would say this is mentioned in the Mishnah. Mishnah year 200 of the common era, right? A hundred years plus after the destruction of the temple. So in the Mishnah, there is a recording or a memory of this is what people said in the temple when you heard God's name, at least on the Yom Kippur service. Okay, this is probably, now we also know, now here we're going to have to connect the dots a little bit. We also know from elsewhere in the Mishnah that the Shema was part of the daily service in the temple. The priests would offer the morning sacrifice, and then they would say a few prayers. This is every day of the year. Um, they would say a bracha. They, the Mishnah doesn't specify what it is. They would say the Ten Commandments. They would recite the Ten Commandments aloud. Then they would recite the Shema. Then they would recite the priestly blessing. Okay, so this was the liturgical service. So the Shema was part of the liturgical service in the temple. I have to look back at the Mishnah. I think we're not sure if it's two paragraphs of the Shema or three paragraphs of the Shema. So that's what the Mishnah says. So you have to connect the dots a little bit and say, on a shot level, maybe the way that Baruch Shem Kod Ma'ed got to be part of the Shema is because the Kohanim recited, or whoever was leading the liturgy every morning recited, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and the respondents said, Baruch Shem Kivod Ba'ed. Although it doesn't say that anywhere in the Mishnah. I want to be clear about that. The Mishnah in one place says they said Shema. The Mishnah in another place talking about Yom Kippur says when they heard the name, they were, people would say Baruch Shem Kivod Ba'ed. So we might infer and put it together that somehow Baruch Shem Kivod Ba'ed was a response of the hearers of the first line of the Shema. Wow. Blessed is God's sacred, great, holy name. Okay, that's one interpret. That's one. Um, that's that's a, a probably a reasonably likely shot reason of how it got together, got to be there. Then there are two midrashim. One of them is Moses. By the way, according to the shot, why would we say it in an undertone? Because it's not actually part of Deuteronomy, right? We're reading a passage. It's a little bit unheard of. I can't think of another place in the Sidur where you have like one continuous passage from the Torah, but you're just going to stick a line in the middle of it, which isn't actually in the Torah. So we're reciting from something from the Torah. 
we stick a line in, it's not really part of the passage, so we say it in an undertone to mark that it's not actually part of the passage. I guess that would be the reason. The two midrashic, uh, midrashim that I know, one is that Moshe went up to heaven and Moshe heard the angels praising God by saying, Baruch Shem Kivod Machuto Leolam Ba'ed. Okay, and Moshe thought, this is a nifty praise. I would like to use this. Okay, it's just like a, a, a <coughs> sampling records. You know, I'm, I think I can use this. So he brought it down to B'nai Yisrael. But because we, it's one of those charming lines, and so I'll put it in air quotes, because we stole it from the angels, lest they be angry at us that we stole their blessing, we say it in an undertone. So that's one midrash. Another midrash is that when Jacob, Father Jacob, Ancestor Jacob, was on his deathbed, if you remember, in the end of Genesis, and was going to give blessings for all of his sons, which would say something about their future, their character and their future. At that moment, when he's about to, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which was his power of prophecy, fled from him. Like he drew a blank, but he drew a blank. His prophetic powers were evaporated. And he took this as a bad sign that meant that somehow one of his descendants would uh, be uh, would leave God and become a non Yudke Vavke follower and apostate. And he said, "Oh no, I've lost the powers of prophecy. I, I worry that this means that one of your descendants will leave the fold uh, and become a, a pagan." And his sons said to him to reassure him, "Shema Yisrael." Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. So in that Midrash, Yisrael means what? Jacob. Jacob. They said to him, don't worry, Dad. Right? They, he, he, they said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Don't worry, Dad. We are all totally single-heartedly devoted to Yud Kevavke. Don't worry. We're, we're totally loyal and faithful. So in that, that second Midrash, um, this is a line that was said by Jacob's sons to him. Um, that doesn't exactly explain why it gets put in the Shema. Okay, the Midrash doesn't exactly explain that. Um, but again, we, again, we'd say it in an undertone because it's not actually part of the, the thing in Deuteronomy. Um, so uh, in um, we've talked a little bit about Kabbalistic interpretations of Kadosh, 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 and Baruch Kvod Hashem in Komo, which I want to remind you, uh, all religions deal with the tension between the idea of God as transcendent and God as imminent, E-I-M-M-A, imminent, meaning God is very far and vast and lofty and created the whole universe and the quasars and the pulsars and the black holes and everything, yet I'm sick and I pray to God to heal me. I'm not actually sick or Hashem, but, but you know, if you're sick, you know, you ask God for personal things and our theology is God hears everyone's prayer and God cares about me. Hashkacha Pratit, which means uh, individual providence of God over everyone. So all religions deal with this tension of like, how is it possible that some being or force that created the whole entire universe cares about me? It's a, 
stretch. And sometimes we talk about God's transcendence and sometimes we talk about God's imminence and sometimes we want to connect them. And in the Kabbalah, they call this sovev and mimale. On the one hand, God surrounds the universe, which is very transcendent. On the other hand, God fills the universe, mimale, or infuses, meaning godliness is infused into everything, right? So God is the vast force that created it all, yet God, God is also the force that is infused into everything in Kabbalah. So a Kabbalistic interpretation of Shema is, no surprise, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad is, you want to make a guess? You have a 50-50 chance, transcendent or imminent. Michael will give you the guess. Transcendent. You'd always start with transcendent. Okay. But remember that Baruch, when we talked about Brachot formulation many, 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 many moons ago, one interpretation of the word Baruch is related to the word Brecha, which means um, pool or fountain, implying flow. So in the Kabbalah, God's uh, energy, I guess I'd use that modern Californian word, God's energy flows through the world and through all aspects of creation. It's like an energy flow. And an image that's frequently used in the Kabbalah is like a fountain. Again, I imagine, I remember years and years, decades ago, I went to the, the Alhambra in Spain, where I was very impressed by, uh, you know, you were a big, powerful guy in hot southern Spain, and part of how you showed your power was how much water you could command. It's a little bit like Las Vegas, right? So um, in the Alhambra, they have these fountains where there are all these levels, you know, what a, the fountain that, you know, spills down to later levels. So that's actually a Kabbalistic image, okay, that God's energy is like a fountain, but which we don't mean a water fountain or a single fountain, but like a fountain with courses to it and flows from up here to down there and then gets recirculated. It connects everything. It's a flow that connects everything. It connects the lowest level of the fountain to the highest level of the fountain. Okay. Sorry if I'm getting a little too, you know, out there for a regular Tuesday morning and in August. Um, so Kabbalah points to the word Baruch, Baruch Hashem, to mean Hashem, you flow. You are the energy flow of the universe, okay? So if understood that way, and this is the Kabbalistic understanding of, uh, or, or this is the little that I know, the little that I understand of the little Kabbalah that I know of an understanding of these two lines, that the first line, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad, is supposed to fill us with a sense of God's vastness and transcendence, okay? And then we say, and in addition to that, but also God flows into God's malchut le'olam va'ed. God's rulership is for all eternity, which means everywhere and any time and every second and every square millimeter of the universe, okay? Um, by the way, this is a core, core teaching of... Um, Chabad, the Lubavitch dynasty of um, Hasidism, right? That God 
infuses everywhere in the universe. And the thought that, um, that there is something in the universe that is not God, that is separate from God, and that is separate from each other, is an illusion. It's an optical illusion because of how our mind and brain works. The fact that you and I, uh, me feeling that you as a separate person is as much an illusion as thinking that these two fingers are not connected. That's actually kind of a pretty good analogy. It's all an illusion. Mitsidenu, and they use the terms mitsido and mitsidenu from God's viewpoint and from our viewpoint. From our viewpoint, we're all separate and we're separate from God and we're all different things, okay? Um, from God's viewpoint, it is actually all one unitary thing. Sorry to use such a silly word, okay? And then scholars argue about, is that pantheism or panentheism? But I'm not going to get into that. The answer is, by the way, it's, they think it's panentheism, not pantheism, which means God is in everything. By the way, I'll get to you in a second, Larry. What were some of the ways in which we started to say already in the Shema service, God is in everything? Well, we had the first blessing when we said God is in nature, right? God is manifest in nature. We had the second blessing in which we said God is manifest in relationship, God's relationship to us. After the creation, we're going to have the third blessing, which is going to say God is manifest in history. Okay, so we have surrounding the Shema three examples of how it is that God's presence is manifest in the universe. So from a Kabbalistic understanding, right, or one Kabbalistic understanding is in Shema Yisrael Hashem Okeinu Hashem Echad, we're talking about God is transcendent, and yet, Baruch Shem Kevod Machuto Le'olam Ba'ed. God's shame of kivod of malchut, God's name of glory of kingship, right? Whatever all that means, flows, baruch, flows, le'olam va'ed, into everything infinitely, into infinity. I'll pause. It's a lot for a Tuesday morning in August. Larry? Thank you. First, Yeshkoach on your shofar this morning. Yeah. Um, so I have two things. I have a simple question, but before the question, I can think of um, th- at least three, three, three places besides reading the Shema um, in Shacharit and, and Mariv. Yeah. Actually, say the line of Shema. One, okay. One is <clears throat> one is in the. Um, Kabbalat Ol Malchut Shemayim at the morning, where we say... Right. We, we have the early Shema, yes. And we actually we have, have... the I was referring to the early Shema in Birchot HaShachar. Go on, yeah. And we, and we actually have the Baruch Shem Kavod line there. Here. Um, yes. The second... No, it's not the second, but another one is on Yom Kippur, at the end of Neila. And we do say Baruch Shem Kavod, I believe, and repeat yes. it three times. Three times. We say the Shema once in Brokshin from Mokto three times, yeah. But we also say the Shema line on Shabbat in the taking out the Torah service. Yes. And we don't say the Baruch Shem Kavod line there. Correct. Just an observation. I don't know why. Yes. 
But and if you wanted to know why, you'd probably attend Rabbi Hillary Chorney's uh, class on Shabbat mornings and say, why is it that line and not that line? And I'm sure there's a history be- behind that, which I don't actually know off the top of my head. But yeah. here's, here's my question, because I, yeah. tr- I, I personally find only the first explanation satisfactory. It makes a lot of sense. It's a response. So here's my question. Should the Shaliyah Sibor, who's reciting the Shema, as Shliach Sibor, should he refrain from even quietly saying the Baruch Shem Kavod because it's a response? Um, if you own, so um, the, the short answer is halachically, no. The, the answer would be no. The Shliach Sibor should say it. Uh, I guess we don't know. Again, I gave an explan- one possible explanation of why Baruch Shem Kavod is here. I gave three explanations. Um, it doesn't say anywhere. None of them is more authoritative than any other, I think. And so, uh, and certainly the halakha doesn't say, because this is only a congregational response, the shliach tzibur should not say it. So the shliach tzibur should say it. Thank you. Yeah, that's the halakhic answer. We'll get to another time the halakha of how to actually recite the words of the Shema more, I promise, in terms of allowed and the letters, but, but we're not doing that today. But the Shriyat Sibur says, in an undertone, the same way everyone else in the congregation does. Marshall? You know, I just wanted to comment about Ruben Hammer's uh, uh, insight as to where this phrase came from. He says that it's, number one, it's the rabbinic response to hearing the biblical verse, Shema Yisrael, and he says that it comes from Psalm 72, Verse number 19. So verse number 18, for example, says, Baruch Adonai Elohim Elohei Yisrael, which is blessed is the Lord God, Israel's God, performing wonders alone. And then verse 19, which relates to what we're saying now, And blessed is his glory forever, and may his glory fill all the earth. Amen. Amen. And that sort of reminds me of what you're saying about God is referred to as not only Sobeb, but also as Male. Okay, good. Thank you. So what I want to point out is, though, just to be clear, the verse in Psalms isn't actually this line. So not exactly. There's, there's a verse in Psalms which is has some elements of this line. So there is a hypothesis that sort of the temple response right, which we know about from the Mishnah and from our Avodah service on Yom Kippur, is a version of that line in Psalms. Meaning, how did they come up with that line? Did someone say, hey, write a line? Or, you know, so it's a different kind of version of a praise line for God for all eternity. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't want people to think that line is from Psalms. This, this line is not from Psalms. Yeah. Right. The, the earliest attestation we have of this line, as far as I know, is the Mishnah. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to wrap it up for today. Uh, and what we're going to do next time, God willing, is next time we'll, we'll have a little more, um, we'll have a little group discussion about, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Echad. Okay, I wanted to sort of, understand the second line before we backtrack to means the first line. Talk a little bit more about Echad and what that means, and then we'll have a little discussion about 
What do you think about, what is your kavanah when you say the Shema? You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.